The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Further that invitation, maybe you've never taken... Uh, recently, Rebecca and I went out to dinner with uh, some, some friends, a, a group of us went out to dinner, and we sat down and we... We uh, looked at the menu, and there was a recommendation came up about a, um, that we get an appetizer, and there's a particular appetizer that was recommended. It was these baked and seasoned Brussels sprouts. Now, I'd like to have a conversation about appetizers and the purpose of appetizers for a second. I, I believe that the purpose of appetizers is to eat junk food before your entree comes, Okay. So don't be sneaking vegetables in on my appetizer, all right? Don't try and sneak that in, okay? Like a good appetizer, we're talking chips and queso, garlic rolls, maybe an occasional mozzarella stick, okay? Like that's what an appetizer is supposed to be. And so like when this suggestion of um, a vegetable as an appetizer, let alone a Brussels sprout, I mean like... In the vegetable kingdom, like Brussels sprouts are the lowest of the low, okay? I I don't know like anybody who says like, you know what, what I love to do, I love to just turn on the game, sit down with a bag of Brussels sprouts and pig out. Like I just don't know that person, okay? Like no one loves the Brussels sprout, all right? And so when this suggestion came up about eating the Brussels sprout appetizer, I'm looking around and it's gaining momentum at the table. And so now it's my opportunity to endorse this decision, okay? And I'm building, okay, like I, I'm being asked, and, and, and the person who suggested, like, I've had this before, it's really good. And so I'm now being asked to take a step of faith here and endorse the order of this Brussels sprout appetizer. And I'm, I'm building the case in my mind. I'm like, okay, I know my life experience, my beliefs about appetizers. I know my life experience with Brussels sprouts, and so far it's not good. But then the last piece of this logic was, okay, but, but the per, what do I believe about the person who's recommending this appetizer? Like, what do I believe about them? And so I'm running through my mind, like, what are their, their diet habits, okay? Like, and if the person is, who's suggesting this is a vegetarian, I'm out, okay? Because it's probably the only appetizer they, they can eat, right? So, like, that doesn't carry much weight. But if the person is, like, maybe, like, on the keto diet, which is really just an excuse to eat as much bacon as possible, okay? And I admire that, whoever came up with that system. Like, if that's coming from that place, like, I might go for it. Like, a keto person is suggesting the Brussels sprout I might be in. So, anyway, we ended up, while I'm working through this, the appetizer gets ordered, it arrives, and miracle of miracles, it was actually fantastic, okay? And the greatest benefit is I could check off Brussels sprouts for the next decade, like I'm good, like I've had it and I'm good now, I don't need to go back there. But I, I bring all that up because all the time in our life, there's these little moments, like these little judgment calls where we kind of like build our argument, but then we have to kind of make a judgment and, and take a step. And it's like all these little steps of faith. And so we, we go on basically like life experience. We're kind of building like a little logical platform that we stand on before we take that step of faith. We're building that little logical platform of what we know, life experience, what makes sense to us. 
And then often the last piece of logic we add is what do we know about the one who is asking us to take that faith leap? So like, let me give you another example. If you take your car into a mechanic and they go back, they do all the tests on it, they look at it, and the mechanic comes back and says, oh, it's bad. I mean, you've got a very expensive part. The only one can be found is in Albania. We've got to ship it in. I mean, it's bad, okay? There, you weren't back there doing the tests. You didn't look under the hood. You, you, maybe you don't have expertise on fixing cars. And so really that person is asking you to trust them, to take a little faith step in what they're saying. And so as you're building the logic in your mind, you're asking yourself, what do I know about this mechanic? If it's the first time you've gone to see this mechanic, you may say, you know what, I'm gonna get a second opinion. If it's a mechanic that you've known all your life, maybe you've known like a long time, they've, this, this person's worked on your cars, maybe you trust them, then maybe say, hey man, whatever you say, we'll go with it. That last piece of logic is who? Who is asking you to take that, that step of faith? You tracking with me? Okay, I, I bring this up because for starters, the basic premise of faith and logic is the, of this series is that faith and logic are not mutually exclusive. They're not warring at each other. They're not two different poles on a spectrum. They actually work together. We, we start by building a foundation of logic that we stand on and then take a faith step. Faith and logic actually work together. But one of the hardest seasons for our faith, especially the hardest for us spiritually, is when God, when we feel like God is asking us to walk through or we find ourselves walking through a season of difficulty or pain or discouragement. When we're walking through a difficult season and we feel like God is asking us to trust him, a lot of times the thing that adds so much tension spiritually where we're frustrated with God, questioning God, doubting God, angry at God, is that last piece of logic is thinking about who is asking us to walk and take that faith step. We're gonna take a look at a story in the Old Testament that I think is just absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's powerful, it's brilliant. It's filled with tension and adventure, and it's just a powerful story, but we're going to do it a little bit different. Um, there's, it's, this story appears in multiple places in the Bible, and we're going to start the story in one place, and we're going to finish the story in another, part of the, uh, another book of the Bible because they, they just highlight different details. So here's what I want you to do. If you have a physical Bible, I want you to open to 2 Chronicles 32, but I want you to hold your place in 2 Kings 19. We're gonna start in one place and finish in the other place. If you have um, a digital Bible, a Bible app, just open to 2 Chronicles 32, <clears throat> and let's jump in on verse nine. 2 Chronicles 32, verse nine. Here's what it says, 2 Chronicles 32, verse nine. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, sent his servants to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying. Now before we get into Sennacherib's message, uh, there's a lot of names and locations in here, and some of them, or many of them, might not be familiar. 
So before we get into the story, let's just kind of calibrate, like, when are we talking in history? Like, what's going on? What's the context? This story takes place in 700 B.C., 700 years before the time of Christ. In this time period, the superpower of the day is the Assyrians. They are a big deal. They have, over the previous generations, conquered most of the known world. They are in power. They are known and feared for their military might. So the Assyrians are the superpower. We're 700 B.C. Over the next 700 years, the superpowers go from Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then then Rome at the time of Jesus. That's where this is in world history. In biblical history, this is about 300 years after the time of David. So this is the, the king is Hezekiah. He's the descendant of David. He sits on the throne in Judah, in Jerusalem. By this point, God's people have been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Judah has the capital city at this time, Jerusalem, where the temple is, where Hezekiah's palace is. Okay, that kind of orients us to what's happening. Recent history leading up to this is Assyria, as they're making their conquest across the known world, they have just marched down through Judah among God's people, and they have destroyed, sacked, captured all of the fortified cities of Judah, except for Jerusalem, the capital, and right now the the final city that they're going after is Lachish. After Jerusalem, Lachish is the largest city in Judah, most fortified. It's, it is a, a um, it, it's an impressive city, Lachish is. And now Sennacherib, after just wiping out all the rest of the fortified cities, is laying siege to Lachish. And at this point, he's sending a message to Jerusalem. What's about to happen is he is going to overthrow Lachish. And we talk about he's laying siege, he's besieging the city. What do we mean by that? That means that all the people of the surrounding villages and the city are locked inside the walls of the city, surrounded by the Assyrians. They cannot get out of the city for fear that they'll get killed as they're trying to escape. They cannot escape. They're locked into their own city. And they have to watch over the walls for the next months or years as the enemies are building siege weapons um, to, to tear down their walls. And they just watch helplessly. <clears throat> In fact, often what happens, and this ends up happening at Lachish, um, we know from excavations at ancient Lachish, what ends up happening is the Assyrians build a giant mound, like a humongous ramp, leading to the top of the walls so all their army can just, just flow right over the walls and into Lachish. So, so the inhabitants, when they're being see- besieged by the Assyrians, are watching helplessly, while they're building these siege engines, and it's one of the most terrifying things you could go through because your options, one of the three things are about to happen. You're gonna starve inside the city, and you may be facing watching your, your family starve. That's one option. Second option is you surrender, which you release total control to these enemies to do whatever atrocities they want to you. Or three, you try and hold your ground and this, one of the most feared armies in the world at this time is going to march through your city, angry that you've held out and refused to surrender, and you will witness all kinds of violence happening in your city, on, on no telling. So if you're being sieged, it is horrifying. 
what happens with Sennacherib is he overthrows Lachish, and this ends up being a massive victory for the Assyrians and Sennacherib. So massive that they did excavations, archaeologists, in ancient Nineveh, and they found that Sennacherib, after he, after he won at Lachish, what was described in the Bible, he commissioned these reliefs to be carved, these huge stone panels to be carved of the battle of Lachish to intimidate and terrify anyone who walked into his palace. So they would see that and know the might of Sennacherib. Now, I actually want, they have these on display in the British Museum. Actually, we have a picture of this, um, of these that are displayed in the British Museum. Okay, I want to show you these, and I'm just going to apologize ahead of time. I'm going to geek out here for a second. So just put up with me for a minute here. These are what's the remains of the reliefs they found in Sennacherib's uh, palace in ancient Nineveh. And this is depicting a battle scene at Lachish. Now let me just show you some of, the, some of these carvings up close. Here's a picture. It's just covered with all these Assyrian warriors. Here's a picture of, you know, they've got archers and chariots. Here are Assyrian slingers. You can see a sling, you know, in their hand with a stone in it. And like if in your mind when you hear stories in the Bible about like slings, like David and Goliath, if you're thinking like Dennis the Menace style, okay, like that's not what this is talking about. This is a feared weapon in, in antiquity. These men get these going so fast that these stones are basically like a bullet if it hits you. And they're deadly accurate. In fact, those panels were found in excavations at Nineveh, but this was found in excavations at Lachish. These are, that's an ancient Assyrian sling with the stones that that slinger had to use um, to, to throw over the walls or throw to the people on the walls, okay? Um, another scene on the reliefs is this. This is a Assyrian uh, um, siege engine, and you see like there's a, there's a guy in the front, and it looks like he has a big spoon, and he's dumping a bunch of spaghetti out the back. You see that part? What he's doing is he's dumping water on the top and back of the siege engine because the people, uh, he's dumping water on it because the people up on the wall are throwing torches trying to light it on fire. You can see that thing like just to the right of what looks like a big spoon. It looks like a broom coming down. Do you see that? That's a carving of a torch. They're throwing torches down. They're, help, they're helpless. The siege engine's coming up the wall. They're throwing torches down, trying to light it on fire, but they're ready for that. They're putting the fire out. Last scene from the Lachish reliefs I want you to see. This is the part of the relief. Remember, Sennacherib commissioned these. This is the part of the relief that shows Sennacherib sitting on a hillside watching this. And he's got this makeshift throne and the, the captives of Lachish and all the spoils are walking before him. You can notice that if you look at the face of Sennacherib, you can see that his face has been destroyed. It's because um, whoever took over or future rivals, uh, they didn't want to destroy the reliefs, but they wanted to desecrate his image. They, they smashed his face. And there's two, you can see there's a rectangle to the upper right and a rectangle to the upper left that has this cuneiform carving. Those are words. And I just want to, want to draw your attention to the one in the upper left. <clears throat> this, is the, this is the translation of that cuneiform writing. It says this, Sennacherib, king of the universe, king of Assyria, seated upon a sedan chair, the spoils of Lachish passed before him. 
That's what you know, Sennacherib's commissioning this relief to say. That, that's what it says. Now, why am I showing you all this, these artifacts that archaeologists have found? Why am I showing this to you? Well, two reasons. One, and this is the first reason, this is kind of a side point, not a part of the main focus of this passage, but here's what I want you to see. This story has been in your Bible for thousands of years. And just recently, archaeologists have found more and more artifacts, artifacts that corroborate this story. In fact, just a few years ago, they were doing excavations under where uh, King David's palace was in Jerusalem, and they actually found, just a couple years ago, the seal of King Hezekiah. And here's the reason I, I just take this opportunity to share this with you, because we're studying this story today, and we're in this Faith and Logic, logic series. When your Bible says something is historical, you can trust the historicity of your Bible. All the time, archaeologists are finding things that corroborate the histories as recorded in the Bible. You can trust your Bible. But the main reason for the subject we're looking at today is I wanted you to see this enemy that God's people are facing, the Assyrians. I wanted you to have an understanding of this enemy. What I did not show you on these reliefs are probably the most famous scenes that are carved in about that battle. And what the Assyrians would do, this was kind of their practice, is as they're sieging and the people are helplessly watching for months, what they would do outside the city to terrorize the inhabitants is they would take other captives and they would ruthlessly, violently, brutally torture them alive to terrify the people inside. And the most famous scenes from these reliefs are scenes of people being tortured outside Lachish. And so we're going to take a look at this story where the Assyrians are destroying Lachish and now they're setting their sights on the last city, the main city, the capital city of Judah, Jerusalem. They've set their, their sights on Jerusalem. And they're setting a message, we're coming for you. And I want to just read through the story. I just want you to hear large chunks of this story. I want to just immerse ourselves in the story as we read through it. And I want you to know who we're dealing with because basically the people of Jerusalem are hearing the news of the absolute Worst case scenario, greater horror than we can probably imagine as moderns. Listen to what happens. This is Sennacherib's message for Jerusalem. Let's pick it up in, in verse 10. <clears throat> Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, on what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you, the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem? Before one altar you shall worship and on it you shall burn sacrifices. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done? To all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? 
Who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion, and do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? And his servants said still more against the Lord God. And against his servant Hezekiah. And he wrote letters to cast contempt on the Lord, the God of Israel. And to speak against him saying, like the gods of the nations of the lands who have not delivered their people from my hands, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. And they shouted it with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them in order that they might take the city. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem. Watch this. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. Sennacherib sends a message to Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he doesn't send it in a scroll with a seal by courier to just Hezekiah to read in his court. They stand outside the city and they shout it in the language of the people who live in in Jerusalem so that they all hear the mockery and they're terrified. And he essentially says, what is your hope? What hope do you have? You have no hope of surviving this. Are you really going to hope in your God? Look at all these cities and nations who came before you. They were praying fervently to their God. And their gods were not able to save them out of my hand. And then he says, how much less, how much less from those gods is your God? You think your God's going to save you from my hand? And the, the narrator here says that in saying that, he compared the one true almighty holy God of Israel, the God of the Bible, compared him to the idols of the other nations that were crafted with, by hand. Idols. These statues that they made. When I was in college uh, my freshman year, I took a pottery class. It was Pottery 101, like I needed like an art class, so I just picked pottery, thought it would be cool. But what I didn't realize is that in Pottery 101, like they don't even let you like sit at the wheel or anything like that. It's like basically like playing with Play-Doh and putting it in a kiln, okay? Like that's all it was. And on top of that, like I was really bad at it, like not good. And like the professor would come by and say, oh, Roby, what do you got there? And I'm like, I don't really know what this is that I've got here, okay? But all through that semester, um, here's something that never, just never entered my mind. I I never had this thought. You know what I'm going to do with this little bowl right here? I I know, like this little statue. I got it. I'm going to take it back to my dorm room, and I'm going to set it up, and I'm going to worship it. That never crossed my mind. 
I never thought, you know what would be a great idea? Like, I am going to trust this thing that I just made to affect my circumstances. Like this came out of my brain, I I then made it with my hands, and I'm going to entrust this thing with my future. I'm gonna make a little sacrifice to it. I'm gonna get a little bowl of ramen noodles here. I'm gonna set it before this little statue that I made and trust that I'm gonna now get an A on my exam. Like that never crossed my mind. And all of the prophets through the Old Testament, whenever God's people are tempted to turn and serve idols and turn away from God Almighty, they're just, they're like blown away at the absurdity of it. They said, really, are you going to make something with your hand? Why would you serve an idol? You make it with your hand and then you, you, like you know what it is, you made it. You craft it with your hand and then you're gonna entrust your life to it? You're going to somehow entrust your circumstances and your future? You're going to like submit and follow to something you created? How absurd is that? And how much more absurd is it to turn to something you created from the one who created you? And so what this narrator is saying is when Sennacherib compares the God of the Bible, the God of his people, to the gods of these other nations... He's comparing him to an idol, something that a man or a woman, something that we created. Now, I want to pick up this story, and I want you to see the reaction that Hezekiah has, but I want you to see how it's described in 2 Kings 19. So jump over there, 2 Kings 19, verse 1. Here's what it says. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace, Children have come to the point of birth and there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be, it may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the, what does it say there? The living God. And will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Hezekiah tears his clothes. He takes a posture of mourning. He sends all his spiritual leaders to go and speak with the famous prophet Isaiah. And he says, he says this, King Sennacherib has come to mock the living God. Please pray to him, Isaiah. It may be that the Lord will hear what Sennacherib has said and hear our prayers. It may be that the living God will rise up on our behalf. Now Isaiah is gonna come back with a message from God. But it's not a message for Hezekiah. The message from God is to the Assyrian king, Sennacherib. Here's what God says to Sennacherib. Verse 22. Whom Have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? 
against the Holy One of Israel. By your message, messengers, you have mocked the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging places, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters and dried up the sole of my foot, all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? That I determined it long ago. I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. That you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. While their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded. And have become like plants of the field and like tender grass. Like grass on the housetops blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in. And you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn your back on the way. I'll turn you back on the way by which you came. You do not want to be on the receiving end of that message from the living God who holds all the universe together in the palm of his hand, who galaxies and stars bend the knee to. You do not want to be on the receiving end of that message from the one true living God. He says, Sennacherib, do you know who you're talking to now? He says, I know of all that you've done and you apparently have forgotten you have simply merely been a tool in my hand. And now that you have forgotten that and you have mocked the Lord and the living God, I will now besiege you and I will personally make you my captive. I want to read one more passage on how this plays out. Verse 35. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in, in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adram Melech and Sherezar, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esar Hadan, his son, reigned in his place. There's a reason why Sennacherib only commissioned reliefs about the second greatest city in Judah. There's none of Jerusalem because the living God stepped in. The living God stepped in and with one angel, you know, Sennacherib asked the question, do you think your God, these other gods didn't save them, do you think your God's gonna save you? Well, what can the God of Israel do? With one angel in one day, 
He destroyed 185,000. He decimated the mightiest army in the world at the time. That all other nations and cities quaked in fear before. And he didn't even need an angel, but he commissioned one angel to take care of the job. Christian, can I just remind you today about who you serve and who you worship? He's the living God. Can I remind you, Christian, I don't know what enemies have encircled you. I don't know what circumstances are confounding you. I don't know what circumstances are confusing and there are no answers to. But can I remind you who you worship, who you serve, who has said that he is for you, not against you? Can I remind you who your God is? who at the right moment rises up on behalf of his people. Can I remind you who he is? He is the living God, the one that no army in the history of the world, no galaxy, no star, no piece of this universe, none of all of creation can stand before the living God, and he is before you. He is for you regardless of your circumstances. I don't know what you're walking through in this season, you may say, look, I can't understand what it would be like to be sieged and locked in a city, but I do know what it's like to feel like I got, just got the worst possible news. I thought it couldn't get worse, and it just got worse. You say, I do know what it's like to have a menacing, ferocious um, group of people or person who wants to take me out. I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to be afraid for my future and afraid for my family and not knowing what's going to happen next and not knowing where God is in this situation. You might say, I know what that's like. I'm walking through that now or I walked through it and I, back a, a while ago in my life and I still don't know those answers. I, I don't know all of those things and God, I guess, is just asking me to trust him. So can I just remind you who is asking you to take this faith step? What do you know about him? He's the living God and no one can stand against him. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are saying. He's still the living God. Regardless of your circumstances, he's still the, the living God. You say, look, I, I know that. But here's my problem. I know he's in control. That's precisely my problem. Like my, my, my problem is like, I'm frustrated because a God who's in control, who apparently loves me, clearly would not let this happen. And so I'm mad and I'm frustrated. And, and you say, because like, look, I in my mind know what I think a good, all-powerful God who loves me should act, and he is not acting in accordance with what I know he should be doing. But you know when we say that, and let me just say, I've felt like that. And there's times that I say, God, what are you doing? How could this be part of your plan? How does this consistent with your character? God, I'm struggling with you right now. But the moment we say that, do you know what we've just done? We've just constructed in our minds how we think God should be acting. And we're holding God accountable to our construct of what a good, powerful God should look like. And you know what that construct is in our mind? An idol. It's the work of our hands. And he's not an idol. He's a living God. 
He doesn't conform to our ideals of who he is. We don't make God in our image. He made us in his image. Regardless of my circumstances, he's still the living God. Regardless of my ideals, my preferences, regardless of what I believe, well, this is what I believe God is. I take a little bit of this, a little bit of this. This makes sense for me of what God believes. Regardless of what I want to believe, it really doesn't matter because he is the living God. He's not a construct of my mind. He is. Regardless of my circumstances, he's the living God. And regardless of my ideals, he's the living God. But sometimes we say, but I just don't know why he takes us through these steps. These, these times we're being stretched and we're, we're having to trust. Like, why does he take us through these faith seasons? They're so hard. You know, there's a logic behind faith. He calls us to pursue him with all of our minds. But at some point, he asks us to surrender our minds. Because if we stop and say, God, I'm not going to believe in you until you make sense to me. I'm saying, God, I'm going to wait till you surrender to my logic. I'm making my logic God. And by definition, God cannot surrender, submit to anything. God is the living God regardless of my circumstances. He's the living God regardless of my ideals, and he's the living God regardless of my logic. He asks us to walk through seasons of faith because faith is treating God like he's actually God and surrendering when things don't make sense. And he says to us, he says, he promises us that he's gonna take us on seasons of faith. He promises us that we're gonna walk through difficulty. In fact, he flat out says in the New Testament, don't be surprised when you face trials. He says, I'm gonna test your faith. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to treat me like I'm actually God. And I'm gonna call you to walk forward even when it doesn't make sense. Expect it. And you say, you know what, I I hear you, but with the pain he's asked me to walk through, it's hard for me to still trust him. Why would I still trust him? Because the living God chose death to demonstrate how much he loves you. How much does he love you? The creator became like his created. God in the flesh as a man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus was taken outside the city and mercilessly, violently tortured for all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem to see. And he died on the cross, why? He died on the cross to take all of our sins so we could be forgiven and he rose again from the dead. So that not only does he, not only does he defeat our sin, but he saves our eternity. And you know what he says about this life? He says that the cost of my life was the adoption price to adopt you as a child of God. He says, I'm your father. I love you. He says, as your father who loves you and who's with you, I'm asking you to walk through this difficult season. And I'm asking you to cling to faith when it doesn't make sense and choose to believe that I will work all things together for good.
We're going to end our time in communion. But before we do that, let's just take a time of prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Christian, I want to give you an opportunity to surrender. You may be going through a time that you say, look, I don't have answers. It doesn't make sense. I, I feel like I'm just barely holding on. The Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Can you bring joy to your father and just take a posture of surrender and say, God, even though I don't know what's going on, I choose to have faith today. Say that to him in your heart right there in this private moment. But others of you here are saying, look, it's this exact subject, which is why I just, I, I struggle to believe in God and I don't want anything to do with him, at least up until this point, because I've gone through hard things. But maybe today you say, I hear how much he loves me. I hear what he did for me with, through Jesus. And I just, I want to believe in something. I want to believe that there's a God who's got a purpose for me and is going to make it all right in the end. And if you're ready to take that step, I want to encourage you to surrender and put your faith in Jesus. And if you're ready to do that, I want to lead you in a prayer. Maybe you're watching online or maybe you're here. I just want to lead you in a prayer, a simple prayer. Just make these words your words right there silently in your heart. Just repeat this prayer to God. Just say, God, I surrender. I don't have all the answers, but I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. And I believe that you have saved me. I surrender to you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.